reached our cruising altitude, it's time for the flyover. Welcome back to Flyover View, a member of the Heartland Pod family of podcasts. Now look at Heartland News from 30,000 feet. From the Gateway Arch to the Rocky Mountains, I'm your host, Kevin Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today as we dive into the stories most impactful to you. November is fast approaching, and I'm not going to lie to you, the GOP in Missouri already thinks they have the race wrapped up. They are ready for yet another supermajority. This week saw the conservative caucus explain that they are urging their team to show unity with the rest of Republicans in Congress. The same week, Senate Majority Leader Caleb Rowden spoke to Scott Fawn on This Week in Missouri Politics, saying that two of the main issues they plan to tackle in the next session are attacking trans kids in sports and the current fear-mongerers issue du jour, CRT. To me, this signals that the story may be that the more moderate Republicans are slipping closer to the conservative caucus rather than than the other way around. Folks, we have strong Democratic candidates ready to help Missourians with real issues in this state. As listener Tom, or at MGOTF on Twitter, has been reminding us all week, Missouri has Republicans to thank for being 33rd in job growth, 35th in GDP growth, 45th in average teacher pay, 49th in the workforce, 42nd in health care, 45th in maternal mortality, 50th in starting teacher pay, 38th in 10-year average annual population growth, 35th in 15-year personal income growth, 49% in state funding for public education, and the fifth worst state to live in. And this list likely goes on. I know that Tom has been adding to it. So before this election, tell some friends, get to the polls, and let's try something different. End the supermajority. Bring some rationale back to the Missouri legislature. Change the conversation. Folks, Let's begin today's show. Buy and bust, a collapse of private equity-backed rural hospitals. In Missouri, rural struggling hospitals, often the sole health care provider and major employer, began changing ownership to Noble Health, a private equity-backed startup whose managers had never run a hospital. One year later, facing staggering debt and a pile of lawsuits, Noble closed their hospital in Mexico, Missouri, and another one it owned in neighboring Callaway County. As the hospitals collapsed, the facility's doctors, nurses, and patients saw evidence that the new owners were skimping on services, failing to pay for and stock surgical supplies and drugs. For example, in Callaway, state inspectors deemed conditions in the hospital to be endangering patients. But what was less apparent, former workers said, was that Noble had also stopped paying for employee health, dental, and vision and life insurance benefits. They were unknowingly uninsured. Noble is now the focus of at least two federal investigations. Employees, after comparing notes about canceled dental appointments, out-of-pocket costs for glasses, and surprise bills, noticed that Noble had taken money from their paychecks for benefits, but then failed to pay for the coverage. One employee, Tara Lavelle, amassed $250,000 to $300,000 in medical bills from the last months of her husband's life after her insurance had lapsed. The U.S. Department of Labor's Employee Benefit Security Administration, after receiving complaints from Lavelle and other employees about surprise medical bills and the loss of life insurance benefits, launched an investigation in early March. Why Noble was in such dire straits is unclear. The company, which acquired both hospitals during the pandemic, accepted nearly $20 million in federal COVID-19 relief funds, including $4.8 million from Paycheck Protection Programs. Obviously, there's something more to the Noble situation. But it should be noted that rural hospital closures are not unusual. 140 have failed nationwide since 2010. Most often, they slowly fade away because payments for the typical patient base, people who are uninsured, can no longer sustain modern care. It's apparent that a privatized health care system simply fails rural citizens. 
Hidden inside the Inflation Reduction Act is $20 billion to help fix our farms. Farms cover roughly 40% of the country, and they've replaced countless ecosystems with vast fields of soybeans, corn, and cattle. Agriculture also accounts for about 11% of greenhouse gases. The Inflation Reduction Act could help blunt some of those impacts. Alongside the more headline-grabbing investments in clean energy and health care, the bill, which President Biden signed into law recently, includes nearly $20 billion to make farmlands more environmentally friendly. The funds are designed in part to help farmers create habitat for pollinators like bees and butterflies, store more carbon in the soil, and make farms more resilient in the face of extreme weather. The biggest chunk of money, roughly $8.5 billion, goes toward a program run by the United States Department of Agriculture called the Environmental Quality Incentives Program. It pays for projects that restore the ecosystem or reduce emissions on farmland. Farmers often use the money to buy plant cover crops. These are plants such as clover, radishes, or rye that are rooted in fields and might otherwise be fallow to improve the health of soil and prevent erosion. The idea is that the ground is always covered with something. Cover crops also have a range of other superpowers, says Rob Myers, director of the Center for Regenerative Agriculture at the University of Missouri. During a drought, for example, they can lock moisture in the soil. During a flood, they can help water more easily penetrate the ground. These plants also provide important habitats for critters above and below ground, such as spiders, beetles, and fungi, many of which provide services themselves, like pest control. Generally, more plants means more animals. The IRA also funnels more than $3 billion into another USDA initiative known as the Conservation Stewardship Program, or CSP. CSP pays farmers to make their lands more sustainable, but it typically provides funding over a longer period and for a larger suite of conservation-related projects. What does that actually look like? Through CSP, a farmer could transform an industrial farm with rows and rows of the same crop into something that resembles a more natural landscape. Such a farm might have a handful of different crops, including fruiting trees and plants that enrich the soil and require fewer fertilizers and pesticides. There's money in the act for two additional programs, both of which are worth knowing, the Regional Conservation Partnership Program and the Agricultural Conservation Easement Program. The Regional Partnership Program, which receives $4.9 billion, is similar to those above but relies on partners such as environmental nonprofits to help make farmland more sustainable. Another $1.4 billion goes towards the easement program. It ensures that farmland won't be replaced by roads, cities, or other developments. Missouri loses $1.35 billion in annual economic opportunity due to child care gaps. The United States Chamber of Commerce Foundation and the Missouri Chamber of Commerce and Industry recently released a new report examining the impact of child care challenges on Missouri's state economy. The report is part of a broader untapped potential study of five U.S. states that reveals the cost of child care challenges and opportunities to unlock economic potential for states, employers, and working parents. The study found that Missouri missed an estimated $1.35 billion annually for the state's economy, including 280 million dollar annual loss in tax revenue due to child care issues. Additionally, 28% of respondents reported that they or someone in their household has left a job, not taken a job, or greatly changed jobs because of problems with child care in the last 12 months. The limited supply of child care currently does not match the high demand, an existing problem made worse by the COVID-19 pandemic. Throughout the pandemic, working parents have struggled to balance work with child care needs, faced with child care options that are too far, too expensive, or do not fit their needs. Meanwhile, child care providers have fought 
to stay operational, and employers have dealt with uncertainty about how and when employees could return to work. All of these contributed to the $1.35 billion loss in revenue for Missouri's economy and an increasing number of employees being forced to leave the workforce. While the impact is different in each of these states, these studies show the urgency needed in addressing child care issues across the country. The challenges in the child care system are complex but solvable, and addressing them comprehensively in ways that consider the needs of parents, businesses, and providers will be central to the nation's long-term economic success. Folks, before we hit the break, I want to inform you that we're taking a brief layover with Colin Lovett. Colin is a Democratic candidate running for Missouri State Representative, hoping to represent District 100. Colin, I want to welcome you to the Flyover View today, and how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, Kevin, for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and uh, just to kind of jump right in here, what made you decide to run for the 100th? Yeah, so, I mean, first and foremost, I'll say this community, it's my home. I was born and raised here, and, you know, now my husband and I own the house that my grandparents built when they settled in St. Louis. So the home that I grew up in is going to be the house that I get to raise my own family in. And I want to represent our collective values of this community uh, in the capital. Growing up, I didn't have the same rights that the law now protects. We didn't have them back when I knew I wanted a first run years ago. So, you know, I know that it's important to have a seat at the table to represent our shared values. And now that I'm married with a kindergartner, I guess as of next week with a kindergartner, uh, you know, I want to make sure that the future in Missouri is better for her than it was for us. And, you know, the other thing I'll say about that in terms of why I'm running now you know, historically, this has been a very conservative area. So my district um, covers Baldwin and Winchester and a little bit more of unincorporated St. Louis. But with redistricting and the fact that it's an open race and with voters continued frustration with the way that our government's been led under the Republican supermajority, we're hearing at the doors that people are ready for a change. And so with the new maps, we see that President Biden won this district by slightly over the 50-50 mark. And we think that we've really got a shot to flip this district this cycle. So that gives me hope that we can get the change that we seek if we if we work hard for it. And, and that's why it was kind of a, important to do now. And what about your background when you go to these doors and you're talking to folks makes you confident that you can represent them? Uh, what do you bring to the table for your constituency? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that, you know, I believe most qualifies me. I mean, I'm from this district. Um, I went to Parkway South and I, I now live here and I'm staying here. Um, I have the education, the experience, the empathy, and the ability to listen to diverse perspectives. I've got professional background in education and healthcare, both in the corporate and nonprofit and small business realms. You know, and also as an openly gay man, I know firsthand what it feels like to face discrimination. So I want to fight to protect the dignity and the rights of the marginalized. I've got skill sets in collaboration and communication, and my goal is to get things done. So I want to use those and, and deliver real results and create value in our community rather than just going to Washington and, you know, button heads and wasting time and money. <laughs> well, and speaking to that on your website, you say... I'm running for state representative to serve my community as a voice of reason in Jefferson City, to protect the dignity and rights of all people and inspire hope that Missouri is an ideal place to live, thrive, and grow. And I know you've kind of touched on some of that already, but uh, what do you mean by that uh, when you're talking to your potential constituents? Yeah, I mean, I think what we've seen, you know, in Missouri, especially in the last 10, 15 years, is this rise of an ultra uh, extremist conservatism. And, you know, I, I really want to kind of bring balance back to the force, if you will, in the state of Missouri <laughs> and in the House. Um, you know, and, and like I said, be that voice of reason, listen to legislation and really understand what the downstream impact of, of that is and on 
you know, real families and real lives. Um, sometimes it sounds good as a talking point or as a bullet on a conservative agenda, but, you know, it really affects people. So I want to make sure that the Missouri House acts with integrity and creates a welcoming environment for everybody. You know, and that's going to take collaborating with other elected officials to get things done. You know, and I, I think I'm I'm qualified to be able to do that. You know, we need to create incentives to do business in Missouri and grow the economy and create good jobs and good pay. I know in this district, you know, that's um, a really key thing. And, you know, it, uh, this is a district where people want to raise their families and start businesses and uh, just live comfortably. And, you know, I want to be able to extend that to um, to all of Missouri. So you've mentioned the economy, you've mentioned education, you've mentioned uh, some equity towards uh, different marginalized groups. But for a lot of folks, they may not be able to look at every issue when they're voting. So for you, what would be the one major issue that you want to tackle if you're elected? Yeah, that's that's always a loaded <laughs> question. I mean, there's there's a lot of things I'd like to get done in Jefferson City. And luckily, you know, these roles, uh, we, we get two years there to do it. But, you know, one that's really personal to me is passing the Missouri Non-Discrimination Act. And it's been posed 20, yes. oh, 20, <laughs> 22, 23 years in a row. And we haven't ever gotten it fully across the finish line. And, you know, I think that the way that the landscape of both politics and Missouri and public opinion is changing, I think that we are more aligned now than ever to be able to get that in. Um, so that's that's one that just kind of comes first and foremost to mind. Um, but, you know, really any opportunity that we have to enshrine people's individual rights into law, you know, I'm going to be there to support that. Seeing Roe versus Wade struck down, you know, advocates and elected officials are saying out loud some of the things that they've been saying behind closed doors. Mm. And I'm worried that they're coming to take away more rights. And I want to be a loud voice in the Capitol to protect those. Yeah. And I, I know that we're long overdue on that legislation. So how can folks find you if they want to help? You know, the best way is my website. It's kind of the path to all other paths. And that's uh, com, which is L-O-V-E-T-T. Uh, from there, you can learn more about me, my background and beliefs. Um, you can make financial contributions to the campaign. You can sign up to get yard signs. You can sign up to volunteer. We've got campaign merch that's going to be rolling out soon. Um, I'm also on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and all of those handles are love it the number four mo so love it for mo great and any upcoming events you want to highlight yeah so you know the the most important thing i think in any campaign is making sure that you knock as many doors as possible and talk to as many voters as you can so from now until the election on november 8th um, every saturday and sunday and i'm sure we'll have more than just that but every saturday and sunday we're going to be holding both morning and afternoon door knocking shifts at 10 and 2 respectively uh so you can go to the website and sign up and rsvp will get you the address of where we're going to meet um and we really need all the help that we can get you know like i said talking to voters is the best way to help us flip this seat but as far as other events go you know things pop up all the time so we have an events page on my website uh, and that's the best way to stay connected for anything up and coming uh this weekend for example we've got a local uh carnival and fair called Baldwin days which uh um, is a big annual event that brings a lot of folks out and we'll be there talking to folks Friday, Saturday, Sunday evenings. Great. And uh, I actually, my wife and I, we lived our first year after marriage in Baldwin, Missouri, uh, right behind Uncle Bill's. I don't know. Are they still around? They're still around. I think with after COVID, they shifted their 24. They, they were one of the few in Baldwin that were 24 hours. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, they're still going strong. Oh, man. Yeah. We lived in those apartment complexes right behind there. It was a great place to grab a meal. You know, I want to thank you for joining me uh, today on the Flyover View and best of luck out there. Yeah, great. Thanks, Kevin. Really appreciate it. And uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. 
Hey there, folks. I hope you're enjoying the show. I want to remind you that we are a 100% listener-supported family of podcasts, all under the umbrella of the Heartland Pod. You can catch our flagship show, The Heartland Pod, on Mondays every week with Adam Summer, where he delivers an opening statement before being joined by Sean Diller and Rachel Parker for Talking Politics. You can also join a variety of hosts on most Tuesdays and Thursdays for Let's Have a Chat, featuring interviews with folks of interest from around the Midwest. On Wednesdays, the focus shifts to a rotating cast of special reports like The Delta with Nicholas and Christina Linke and High Country, Sean Diller's Western Political Updates. Learn more at heartlandpod.com. And don't forget, for full access to the Last Call episodes and the Heartland News blog, sign up on Patreon as a podhead today. And now, the lightning round. Lightning round. The lightning round today, folks, is a back-to-school jamboree. What will educators and students face this year? Well, let's have a look. Intrusive anti-equity legislation and protest. 42 states have introduced bills or taken action to limit CRT in classrooms. Groups forming in districts across the country stirred into a frenzy by politicians on the right are seeking to undermine public schools for their own benefits. They have essentially been drafted into the war against public schools as conscripts. School board meetings have become ferocious. Protesters claim that children are being forced to see everything through the lens of race. In many cases, any lesson about the country's history of racism or contemporary struggles with race is being mislabeled as critical race theory. Mixed in all this are the equity officers. In school districts, they're generally hired to change or institute policies and practices that make sure students who have been historically disadvantaged can get the same opportunities as their more privileged counterparts. Many districts have had people who are responsible for this for years, and they have a job to do. But the slew of legislation restricting lessons and training about race and racism in schools has led to local pressure on their districts to back away from some equity measures. Book bans. In a Texas school district this week, a back-to-school sweep removed the Bible and an Anne Frank adaptation from the shelves. Last-minute book sweep is one of several changes in schools across the country that will restrict students' access to books in the new school year. Parents, school board officials, and lawmakers have recently challenged books at a pace not seen in years. With some of the most scrutinized books dealing with sexual, racial identity, and in Texas, it seems the Holocaust has become a touchy subject for many. In Tennessee, a teacher is pushing back. Sidney Rawls is calling the age-appropriate material Act out of the Tennessee legislature useless in a three-minute-long video she shot on a Saturday in her classroom, saying that it's shifting the focus away from teaching kids how to read to requiring a new lengthy screening process that adds additional burdens on educators in their libraries. In Missouri, a new law makes it a Class A misdemeanor if anyone provides visually explicit sexual materials to a student at a private or public school. But the law itself isn't very clear on who decides what's explicit, and many assume what backers the law really don't want is LGBTQ plus material in their libraries, and they don't want the voices of black authors. Gagging laws. Similar to the attacks on race-related equity education, Republican lawmakers have introduced a soaring number of bills aimed at limiting classroom discussion on LGBTQ plus issues. Gender identity has been an increasing focus of conservative lawmakers. From the beginning of January this year through mid-August, 23 bills have been introduced which would limit how teachers can discuss gender identity. The bills introduced by conservative lawmakers hardly represent public demand. More than 70% of parents are satisfied with their education that children are receiving 
reading, and fewer than 20% of parents are dissatisfied with the way their children are being taught about gender and sexuality and race. In March, Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, signed a bill dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill into law. And laws like that remain vague, purposefully so. The more vague the bills are, the more self-censorship is going to go on, the more afraid teachers will be, and the more afraid administrators will be. Take Springfield, Missouri, for example. Kickapoo High School principal Bill Powers instructed some educators to take down their personal pride flags. One teacher, who was told to do so, clarified that Powers himself is an inclusive-minded individual, but one can suspect that fears over vague and harmful bills put forth by a minority mindset of hate has the man scared. School choice. Among the most significant victories for school choice proponents this year came on June 21st when the United States Supreme Court ruled that Maine's education voucher program cannot exclude religious schools, as had been stated under state law. The decision in Carson v. Macon, coupled with previous court rulings, are contributing to the gradual death of state Blaine amendments, which prohibit state funds from being directed toward religious schools, a huge blow to the separation of church and state. And lately, many states have begun the slow erosion of public school funding that programs like Tennessee's Education Savings Account program that looks to remove funding from public schools and allocate it in the private realm. A trickle now, but it could forecast a future of even more erosion of public school funds, ushering in an educational land of winners and losers. Shortages and funding. Teachers are leaving. Concerns about public disrespect, low wages, and legislation restricting classroom content explains the vast majority of this. In Missouri, Governor Mike Parson is pushing a big tax cut. And while there are many reasons to squint at the less-than-original plan, it mostly benefits the wealthy, for example. In the realm of education, we have to ask ourselves if maybe we could instead invest a little money into our public schools. Perhaps an overdue boost in pay. Teachers and other educational professionals aren't the only shortage in education. Bus driver shortages are cropping up everywhere. One report out of St. Louis shows that nearly 3,500 students across St. Louis cannot take the bus to school for at least two weeks because of a driver shortage. No free lunches. As parents are getting ready to send their kids back to school, many are worrying once again about school lunches. The nationwide universal lunch program, which launched at the beginning of the pandemic, expired at the end of June. And you folks can thank Republicans for that. Honestly, beyond all the discussion on how this affects students facing hunger and beyond that, it boggles my mind why we're still bothering with the bureaucracy of it all. Forcing schools to deal with the financial nonsense of student accounts, deciding if kids eat or not because of them, etc., things were immensely smooth not dealing with this additional parental burden. I can personally attest to that. I have no idea why we're moving backwards here. Again, thank you, Republicans. So COVID isn't gone. But as we can see, it's no longer the main threat to our schools. We have conservatives to thank for that. The six topics I hit on are only the tip of the iceberg. On a personal and local level, I've heard a number of back-to-school messages to teachers essentially being, leave your problems at the door. Or in one instance, at the Columbia Public Schools, a picture was taken of a slide at an orientation meeting where the quote, don't pray for a lighter load, pray for a stronger back, is emblazoned upon the screen. Is it any wonder we see teachers fleeing the profession? 
Well, that's all the time we have this week, folks. I want to thank you for joining us. If you have a story you feel I should look into and possibly highlight on the show, please tweet me throughout the week at Kev in Midmo or the pod's parent account at the Heartland Pod. This week's episode featured reporting and information from the New York Times, the Springfield News Leader, Kaiser Health News, the Missouri Chamber of Commerce, ABC, The Economist, Washington Post, Education Week, The Guardian, Fox 11, Vox, Missouri Independent, and TMJ4 Milwaukee. And a special thanks to listener Brennan for a number of stories during my education segment. Thanks for listening. The Flyover View is a production of MidMap Media, LLC. Learn more at www.heartlandpod.com or at the Heartland Pod on Twitter. See you all next week.